Well, good morning. Welcome. We're going to be talking about uh, interpretation today. As you know, we have been working through um, bibliology and hermeneutics. Somebody give me a definition of bibliology. The study of the Bible, right? So what is it? And then uh, what about hermeneutics? What's hermeneutics? The study of Herman. It's various Hermans. Herman Munster and so forth. Besides that, what else is hermeneutics? Yeah, how to interpret uh, and determine meaning of the text. So bibliology, what is scripture? Hermeneutics, uh, how to interpret scripture. And so we're in uh, this section of the semester where we're talking about hermeneutics. We've kind of walked through observation. Observation, you remember, is just what do I see? You're not making any sort of judgments as to whether or not that happens to be significant or not. You're just making as many observations as possible. Now we're moving into interpretation, and then uh, the Dr. Jerry Halbrook will be with us next week uh, to help us see application. What do we do with it? So observation, what do I see? Interpretation, uh, what does it mean? Application, what do I do with it? So let me pray for our time uh, together. If you're not sitting around somebody, we're going to be doing some uh, sort of group activities today. So if you're not sitting around somebody while I pray, if you would just uh, go and gather up with somebody, that would be great. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, today. Thank you for uh, your love, your grace, your kindness toward us. Thank you for the the scriptures and the opportunity that we have, as your word says, to uh, think over uh, what you have uh, written and uh, that you will give us understanding. And so we pray for that understanding from your Holy Spirit. I pray for this morning that you would bless us and encourage us and edify us as we consider these things, as we go into worship uh, and, uh, and listen to your word and, uh, and sing together uh, that uh, we would uh, have our hearts uh, freed and our minds uh, taught. And, uh, and so we love you. We want to love you more. Would you uh, help us? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first thing, I want to start with just a, a moment of, uh, of discussion in a, a group. So get with another one, two people or so, uh, no, no larger than maybe four people. And, uh, and I want you to just uh, think about this just for about a minute or so. What are some of the obstacles? What are some of the obstacles that we have to properly interpreting Scripture? What are some of the obstacles that we might encounter in order to properly uh, interpret scripture. So think about that for a second. And that's that. All right, we will get back in these groups in just a little bit. Uh, but for now, shout out uh, a few things. What are some obstacles? Presuppositions, absolutely. What's another? Different culture, yeah. You are, there's a distance that you have from uh, what is written to when you read it. And so not only a geographic uh, distance, but uh, a distance of time and culture, linguistics, so forth. What else? Yeah, the, there's semantic shifts. So words can change over time. Uh, we've talked about that quite a bit. What else? Yeah, false interpretations and so forth. Uh, you could add to this, uh, you, could ask, uh, you could add time, right? 
So you're rushed, and so you kind of rush through the process. Obviously, your interpretation is going to suffer uh, for that. You don't give it adequate effort or energy, whatever it might be. Sin, we still have, uh, even those who are redeemed, we still have the residue uh, of the flesh, and there are certain uh, doctrines and so forth that our flesh rails against. And, uh, and so uh, all of these are potential obstacles to properly interpreting Scripture. Some of you know my, uh, my testimony. I grew up in the church but uh, wasn't uh, regenerate until after college. Uh, after college, uh, got a corporate job, moved up to Dallas, was living here in the area, was just absolutely bored out of my mind. And, uh, and my thought was, you know, I'm 23 years old, graduated from college, uh, got the uh, good job and so forth. And so now the next thing is to find a wife. And so uh, my goal in going to church was just to find a wife. 100%, that was it. It was not mixed motivations, whatever. I knew what I was there for. And, uh, and that was the goal. But I went to this huge mega church. And, uh, and so uh, 20,000 or something like that was the uh, weekly uh, attendance at this church. So really hard to meet anybody, much less uh, a girl. And so they had something similar to what we do here with community groups, and those were co-ed. And so I went to one of those, and uh, in the context of that, they invited me to a men's Bible study. Didn't want to go to the men's Bible study, but they played flag football afterwards. And so uh, I thought, man, I love flag football. I'll sit through a Bible study in order to uh, play flag football. And so I went to this thing, and this is on your notes there. This is the passage that they read uh, that night. Come now, you who say, this is from James 4, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So we spent about an hour, uh, a group of guys, just kind of walking through this passage. And, uh, and these are some of the things uh, that uh, we talked about Uh, in that group. So we had some guys who said, what he's saying here is making a profit is bad. You should never want to make a profit and so forth. So this was not like a business uh, guy. And uh, and so that was one of the interpretations. Another guy said, planning for the future is bad. You should not have any sort of planning for the future. Another guy said, not only should you not plan for the future, you shouldn't even talk about the future. Any sort of talk about the future whatsoever uh, is bad. You had another guy who said, well, no, those things aren't necessarily bad, but you have to actually verbally say the words, if the Lord wills, before any plans that you make. So if my wife texts me and says, hey, can you meet me at 6 p.m., I have to always text back, if the Lord wills, I can. That was one of the interpretations. One of the guys really said uh, that. And so I didn't know, obviously, this is my first time I've ever read the Bible in my entire life. I did not know what the right answer was, but I knew it wasn't all of these different things because some of them are contradictory. And, uh, and so I decided at that point I wanted to read the entire Bible. This was the means by which the Lord got me to begin to read the Bible. And over the next couple of months, he began to soften my heart uh, and, uh, and uh, give me a love for uh, the gospel and, uh, and so forth. So uh, you can see how just depending on our presuppositions, depending upon the way that we approach the text and so forth, uh, the, the application that we make is vastly different depending on the interpretation. So if the text is really saying that to make any sort of plans uh, is evil, then you, you can't plan where you're going to go to dinner later that night. 
You can't do any of these sorts of things. So you see how your interpretation is going to affect your application, but you have to get to the interpretation first. What we've been doing over the past few weeks, whether we've called it that or not, is really working through interpretation. We've been doing hermeneutics. We've been doing kind of building a foundation of exegesis. Right? We've talked about exegesis before. What's the opposite of exegesis? Eisegesis. Eisegesis is reading something into the text. Not what the author intended, but you're reading it on the text. Exegesis is drawing out. What is it the author wants you to see? And you're just simply pulling uh, that out. And so we've been doing that over the past couple of weeks. When we talk about logical and exegetical fallacies, we're talking about how to do this work of uh, interpretation. We just didn't call it that. So what I want to do this morning is two things. I want to uh, walk through a few principles. Most of these principles will really just be kind of a recap of things that we've kind of introduced over the past few weeks. And then I want to give you an extended period of time in the context of groups to do the actual work of interpretation yourself. And so uh, we'll give you a couple of exercises to work on together. So again, a couple of principles to keep in mind as you're doing interpretation and then some exercises uh, so that you get to have a little bit of experience doing that. So let's talk about principles for faithful exegesis or uh, faithful interpretation. All right, so again, all of these pretty much are going to be things that we've already introduced in, uh, in other lessons and so forth. And so if, uh, if you're not getting enough of one of these principles in particular, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to some of the other uh, talks where we've talked about some of these things. So first one, principle one, interpretation must be based on author's intent. Uh, so Zach talked about this uh, a lot. And so uh, you have, does the, does the meaning, does it reside in the audience like, do I get to decide what Paul means? Do I get to decide what James means or John means or so forth? So Zach uh, spent an entire lesson talking about the importance of us recognizing that intent and meaning lie in the author, the human author and the divine author. Somewhere between the two, uh, you have the meaning of the text, which lies with the author, not uh, the, uh, the, the reader and so forth. So what, oftentimes you'll go to a, a small group or something like that and someone will say, this is what the passage means to me. Which could be important if what it means to you is what it meant to Paul, but if it's not what it meant to Paul, then it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it means to you. I'm not interested in what it means to you. I'm inter- interested in what it means. And as long as there's a distance between the two, you're gonna be led uh, astray. And so I found this uh, quote to be helpful. This is by Howard Hendricks, who was kind of uh, one of the uh, kind of champions of uh, Bible study methods and so forth at uh, Dallas Seminary. And he said this, meaning is not our subjective thoughts read into the text, but God's objective truth read out of the text. As someone has well said, the task of Bible study is to think God's thoughts after him the miracles that he used human authors to do so, working through their personalities, their circumstances, and their concerns, the Holy Spirit superintended the crafting of a document. In each of the human authors, God's co-authors, we might call them, had a specific message in mind as he recorded his portion of the text. That's why I like to refer to the step of interpretation as the recreation process. Uh, we're attempting to stand in the author's shoes and recreate his experience, to think as he thought, to feel as he felt, and to decide as he decided. We're asking, what does this mean to him before we ever ask, what does it mean to us? So in other words, what it means to you should be what it means to the original author simply translated into your unique experiences and culture and so forth. So that's the first principle. 
uh, that interpretation must be on the uh, author's uh, intent. Second one, principle two, that we have to interpret within the given literary and historical context. So remember, each verse of Scripture is connected to a larger section of Scripture, a paragraph, uh, a pericope, if you've heard that word before, which is a little subset of Scripture. Each pericope or paragraph or section is connected to a book. Each book is connected to a larger sort of corpus. You have all of Pauline's writings or whatever it might be. Those are all then connected to a particular testament, which is then connected to the overall Bible. Sort of like that knee bones connected to the, I don't know anything about anatomy apparently. I can't think of what's next. (laughs) But whatever it was, it's connected to something. I know that. Uh, and, uh, and so sort of that sort of imagery, that's how the scripture lines up, right? It's all interconnected. Tim will occasionally take audio out of our preaching and teaching and isolate something completely out of context. And so we literally have a, uh, we have, uh, like audio of Zach saying, Hitler, you are so smart. (laughs) All right. Now we have audio of me saying that very phrase, Right. Uh, and uh, one time, uh, I think it was like a week or two ago, Zach says, I raised people from the dead. He's quoting somebody else and so forth, but we have that audio. Now we have me saying that as well. Uh, when I was at uh, A&M, there was this uh, really popular shirt uh, that was kind of going around campus, and, uh, and it was Psalm 7510, all the horns of the wicked I will cut off. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, you know. A&M's big sort of thing is that uh, you saw the Longhorns' horns off. That's kind of our, I don't know, our fight song, our, our identity. And, uh, and so that's, the, that's what's on the phrase. At that point in my life, I never read the Bible, so I thought, man, that's interesting. God has given a verse that says horns are bad or whatever it might be. Well, if you go on and read the rest of it, it says, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up, right? So we didn't actually focus on that part. So again, pulling things out of context. A majority, as you're, uh, you're hearing misinterpretations of Scripture, a majority of these are going to be because someone has isolated something from the surrounding uh, context. And, uh, and so a good buddy of mine uh, once preached a message on Hebrews 12.1, uh, which uh, says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And his uh, interpretation of this great cloud of witnesses would be like if I'm standing up here and I'm talking about y'all. And y'all are the great cloud of witnesses. The problem with that is Hebrews chapter 11. What's Hebrews chapter 11? The hall of fame, right? The hall of fame of of faith, right? So the hall of faith. And so uh, the witnesses that it's talking about is not you and me. It's not the people sitting in the audience as someone's preaching. The witnesses that he's talking about are people like Abraham and David and Solomon and on and on and on, all of the different people that he's talking about in verse 11. Uh, How many people you might even have, don't raise your hand if you do, I'm not trying to shame you or something like that, but you go to a house and they have, uh, choose you this day whom you will serve, right? Where's that from? Anybody know? What book of the Bible? Joshua, right? Choose you this day whom you will serve. Does anybody know what comes immediately before that? It says, if you refuse to worship Yahweh, then choose you this day who you will serve, right? It's not actually talking about you choose Yahweh or choose somebody else. It's saying if you reject Yahweh, go choose. Go choose which God you're going to serve, Baal, whatever it might be. And, uh, and so 
uh, again, a lot of the uh, the time, the vast majority of, uh, of the time that you will, you will fall into the trap of inter- misinterpretation is because you're isolating something out of the original context. So scripture, you get this sort of I- imagery. Scripture talks about itself as being living and, uh, and active. But imagine what you're doing when you're taking something out of context is you're taking a flower and you're cutting it and you're removing it from its root. What's going to happen to that flower? It's going to die, right? It's no longer living and active. It's dead. It's in the process of decaying. In the same way, a scripture passage that has been brought out of its context that no longer bears any sort of resemblance to where the author intended it to be is not going to be living and active in your heart. It's going to be something that is going to bring about death and decay uh, and so forth. So that's the second principle. The third principle, interpret the Bible literally or normally allowing for literal use of figurative language. Literal use of figurative language. And so we've talked about this uh, a little bit, that we can go either way in our interpretation too far. We can kind of be too literal, or we can be not literal enough. And, uh, and so uh, we talked about before, don't miss the literal point of figurative language. So Zach gave an example of having a conversation with somebody who was talking about the fires of hell, and we don't know if that's fire the way that we understand fire. That might be reading a little bit too much into the text to say it's fire in the exact way that we understand fire today. But what's the point there? Is it going to be pleasant? No. No. Hopefully we can all imagine or we can all interpret. Whatever it means, it means something that is terrible, horrible, uh, something that is going to be uh, very unpleasant for whoever suffers it. And, uh, and so don't rob the sort of power of the figurative point. Uh, this would also include things like uh, allegorization. We talked about uh, the, uh, the use of allegorization in, uh, in medieval exegesis and, uh, and so forth. And we talked about uh, Augustine's classic example of the Good Samaritan where literally every little element in that parable has some sort of reference um, now, the vast majority of them, hopefully you remember whenever we talked about that, the vast majority of them were not intended by the author. When Jesus is giving this uh, parable, he doesn't intend for the donkey to be the apostles or whatever it might be that, uh, that are carrying the good news or something uh, like that. So don't over-allegorize. Uh, and on the other hand, don't think that the word literal always means non-figurative. So sometimes we think of the word non, uh, literal as being non-figurative, as if when Jesus says, this is my body, he has to mean this is ontologically, this is essentially, this is uh, turning into my actual body like Roman Catholics believe in consubstantiation and so forth. But that doesn't mean that any more than whenever Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, that means you and I are actually physically, naturally sheep or something like that. And uh, so the second one, I'm sorry, the third principle, interpret the Bible literally allowing for the literal use of uh, even figurative language. The fourth principle, probably the most important to, uh, to remember, is use the Bible to interpret itself. Use the Bible to interpret itself. This was a huge part of the Reformation, right? The Reformation, one of the, the big cries of the Reformation is that Scripture is its own best interpreter, right? Uh, as opposed to the Roman Catholic Church, which said what? What's the best interpreter of Scripture according to the Roman Catholic Church? The church or tradition, right? So you have the Reformation is to say, no, 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 the church can be helpful, tradition can be helpful, but the best interpreter of Scripture is 
Scripture itself. What we're looking for is a thick reading of Scripture, not a thin reading of Scripture. We're looking for a reading of Scripture that not only looks at the, the immediate context, but the larger context, the canonical context of uh, this passage. What, what is it that's said elsewhere? So Paul's writing something in Galatians. Well, what does he also say in Ephesians? And then what does he also say in Romans? And then how does that also relate to what Matthew has written or Mark or whoever it might be? And so this is in particular one of the places where the cults are going to try to feast upon uh, uh, the flock and so forth. They take this little, this one little ounce of Scripture and they use that to try to uh, to negate or disregard or ignore this ton of Scripture that's teaching something else. And so uh, that's the fourth principle, to use the Bible to uh, interpret itself. Fifth principle, interpretation must be distinguished from application. Interpretation must be distinguished from application. Hopefully you see each of these steps, the, although they're interconnected, interpretation uh, I'm sorry, observation, interpretation, application. Each one of these are interconnected, but they must stand alone. You can't confuse them. In interpretation, you're making, you're beginning to make uh, value statements about your observations. This is significant because, fill in the blank, in observation, you're not doing that. So you've got to do observation before you do interpretation. You've got to do interpretation before you do application. Otherwise, you're going to apply something incorrectly. Who here has ever thought someone was coming to give them a hug? And really, they were going to reach out for a handshake or something. You have that awkward moment where you're trying to give them a hug, but they weren't trying to give you a hug. You've interpreted incorrectly, and so therefore, you're applying incorrectly. You've got to interpret before you apply. J.I. Packer says, a misinterpreted Bible is a misunderstood Bible, which will lead us out of God's way rather than in it. A misinterpreted Bible is a misunderstood Bible, which will lead us out of God's way rather than in it. So in your haste, yes and amen, to be doers of the word and not merely hearers, yes and amen to application. But in our haste to get to application, if we misinterpret, then we're misapplying. Does that make sense? And, uh, and so there's a, a, a funny anecdote, probably uh, completely uh, legendary, uh, about a guy who randomly opened up the Bible and wanted to know what's God's will for his life. And uh, he found Matthew 27, 5, which says, Judas went out and hanged himself, right? And then he found those words unhelpful. So he did it once again, and he found Luke 10, 37, which says, go and do likewise, right? And then he tried one more time, and he found John 13, 27, which says, what thou doest, do quickly, right? <laughs> so each passage is only going to have one interpretation, it's only going to have one interpretation, but it's going to have vast amounts of implications and applications. But there's only one interpretation. There's only one meaning in the text. It's just what we do with that meaning, the way that we apply it to our lives, the implications that it has for us are going to uh, adjust. So we have to distinguish interpretation from application. Principle six, be humble enough to doubt your presuppositions and question your assumptions. Be humble enough to doubt your presuppositions and question your uh, assumptions, all right? So one of the big things that we have to do here is to kind of take our time to be slow and methodical about it, all right? I love uh, reading 
Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and watching various adaptations of Sherlock Holmes and so forth. And one of the things that I love is that, I mean, he walks into a room and he sizes it up completely. But you'll notice sometimes he gets it wrong. If you ever read some of the works or, or watch the BBC series or whatever it might be, sometimes he just gets it absolutely wrong. Uh, so, for instance, if I, I'm wearing a wedding ring, I am married, but does the presence of a wedding ring mean I'm necessarily married? No, I could be wearing a wedding ring for a number of other reasons, right, uh, depending on culture and so forth. So, uh, as, a, as a kind of big example, if I wasn't wearing a wedding ring, would you know def- definitively that I'm not married? I could have left it at home, whatever it might be. Did you know the, that a lot of members of the royal family in, uh, in England don't wear a wedding ring? You ever look at, uh, at pictures of uh, Prince William and uh, his grandfather, uh, Philip. They never wear a wedding ring. That's just not part of their tradition, whatever it might be. It doesn't mean that they're not married. And, uh, and so uh, kind of slow down, take your time, put together the various observations. Don't rely on one observation and, uh, and don't jump to uh, conclusions. Oftentimes what we do is we have this sort of... Uh, uh, presupposition, we have this sort of foundation of theology because we've grown up in church our entire life. And so we might default to the right truth with the wrong passage, the right truth with the wrong uh, passage. What we want to do is not just ask, is this thing true? We want to ask, is this thing what this actual text is saying? All right? So imagine when I was a kid, my dad would leave me notes. He would leave me notes uh, whenever he'd go off to work, and, uh, and the notes would say things like, mow the lawn or, uh, you know, uh, weed the garden or something like that, uh, pull weeds from the garden, something like that. Imagine if I saw, oh, my dad's left me another note. Must be a love note. He's saying he's proud of me. I just went back to watching chips and so forth, whatever it was that I was doing when I was a kid. Uh, obviously, I'm not going to apply whatever he's saying uh, correctly because I'm, I'm, I've just read into it. Something that's true, my dad does love me. He is proud of me and so forth. Uh, but that's not what that actual note is saying. And so we do this all the time. The fact that something is true in the Bible doesn't mean that every single passage explicitly teaches that thing. So suppose you're wanting to talk about the importance of baptism, right? And you go to John chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God, and you use that as a passage on baptism. Well, the problem with that is that in the context that Jesus is not talking about baptism at all, all right? The passage is not dealing with, uh, with uh, baptism at all. Whenever it references being born of water, it's also referencing being born of the Spirit. It's referencing the new covenant. In Jeremiah, it says that you will be sprinkled with water and God's Spirit. So what Jesus is saying is not, you must be baptized. Well, that's a true statement in a sense, That's not what Jesus is saying there, though. Jesus is saying you must be born again in light of this sort of uh, uh, new covenant promise uh, that's embedded in the Old Testament and so forth. And so uh, what we want to do is not merely say this is something that's true. We want to find the right truth with the right text. And so imagine you go to a doctor, right, and, uh, and you're complaining of a particular ailment, and your doctor just begins to tell you things that are true, right? They just begin to give you all kinds of information. They give you information uh, about cholesterol. They give you information about heart attacks, about strokes, about cancer, uh, about broken bones, about all these kinds of things, but they're not in any way connected to what your actual symptoms are. Are you going to be encouraged by that conversation with the doctor? 
Absolutely not, right? They're not doing their job in that moment. The job of a physician is not merely to lecture you on all of the things that could go wrong with the human body. The job of the physician is to say, what's going wrong with your body? In the same way, we, when we go to the text, is not merely to say, what is God, what is true in general, but what's this text in particular teaching and saying and so forth. Uh, Principle seven, be sensitive to the type of literature you are in. Be uh, be sensitive to the type of literature you are in, which is called genre. And uh, I was reading a, a church website the other day. And, uh, and, and it talked about uh, the, you know, the proverb about train a child and the way he should go, and even when he's old, he will not depart from it. And on the church website, it said, that is a promise from God, right? That is a promise from God. Now, when we look at Proverbs, we know those are not promises. Those are principles. Those are principles for godly living, right? They are intended to give us something wise that we are to apply, we should absolutely train the child uh, in the way that he should go, but we cannot then use that as a promise that God will definitively not allow your children to err, whatever it might be. Uh, we all probably have met people before who were faithful parents, and yet their children, uh, whether for a season or whatever it might be, uh, have departed uh, from that. And, uh, and so if that's a promise, that sort of passage, then so is the verses that say the righteous shall never go hungry, right? Which might be true here in the context of uh, America because very few people go hungry, but throughout the world, a lot of people go hungry. In fact, uh, Paul talks about the fact that he went hungry oftentimes. Or the slothful man shall never suffer want. But we know examples of lazy people who have uh, gotten uh, rich and so forth. And, uh, And so likewise, when we recognize Proverbs are not promises, they're principles and so forth. Likewise, uh, apocalyptic literature, we don't read the same way as we might read the book of Acts or whatever it might be, right? There's, you read each different uh, genre of Scripture according to the rules of that particular genre. You read a letter from your doctor differently than you read a letter from your spouse, uh, whatever it might be. And so that's the seventh. The eighth principle Interpret within the context of community. Interpret within the context of community. This is a, 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 a one that's uh, probably most mistaken in our culture uh, because of this, uh, how highly we value individualization and isolation and sort of the personal experience of our faith kind of uh, segregated from the corporate expression of the faith. I love Acts chapter 8. Philip goes uh, to the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? I love the way the Ethiopian eunuch responds. I wish that uh, we would have a similar sort of response. And he says, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Sort of that uh, uh, desire to do this in the context of community. Not only your immediate community, your community group, your church, whatever it might be, but historical community as well. Reading what other faithful Christians have, have written over time and how they have interpreted the Scripture and so forth. If you see something in the text that no one around you sees, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're wrong, but we should always approach it with a healthy level of suspicion. Right. This is one of the dangers of the Reformation. One of the, the graces of the Reformation is uh, it puts the Bible back into everyone's hand. If you remember when we talked about the history 
of the Reformation uh, and so forth, we talked about the fact that prior to the Reformation, uh, most people did not have uh, access to God's Word. Uh, They didn't read or speak Latin, and that's all the Bible was in, and that's all the Bible services were in. Imagine coming to church every week and, uh, you know, occasionally Jerry or Zach or I might use a word you don't know, but imagine if you didn't know any words because we're speaking a language that's completely foreign to you. Well, the danger of the Reformation is that it then puts the Bible in everyone's hand, but then everyone thinks that they are equally gifted uh, to be able to interpret. Zach talked about this with logical fallacies and uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson and how, you know, he's a, what is he, an astrophysicist or something like that? But he's like uh, on, um, you know, talk shows and so forth talking about market economics and so forth. Now, he might have written... Uh, he might have read quite a bit on that. He might know something about that, but he is not an expert in that to the degree that he is maybe an expert, uh, an alleged expert in astrophysics. Uh, and, uh, and so likewise, we should not interpret every text as if we are experts uh, in it. We need the context of uh, community. So uh, in uh, coming out of the Reformation, kind of this idea of in those days there was no king and everyone did what was right in his own eye. Everyone reads the Bible in such a way as it's right in my own eye. The problem is oftentimes our eyes are wrong. And, uh, and so you have to interpret within the context of community, your immediate community and uh, historical community. Almost done. Three more. Principle nine, interpret in light of the overarching storyline of Scripture and the supremacy of Christ. So in particular, we're talking about here the Testaments, two different Testaments, and uh, we, we had that uh, a little bit um, uh, last week in the sermon as we talked about uh, the effect of Christ's death on the Mosaic Law uh, and how the, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been broken down. So therefore, we're no longer under Old Testament law. And, uh, and so... Galatians chapter 3, 23 through 29. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to uh, the promise. We talked uh, about this uh, a little bit last week. So you're under a guardian. Before Christ comes, that word guardian there is often used something that would be similar to like a babysitter. You're under a babysitter. But at some point, you no longer have a babysitter, right? When, uh, When... Diane goes out of town. Mike doesn't have a babysitter. Maybe he should, but he doesn't, right? Why? Because he's an adult, right? Uh, On one of my trips to Japan, I saw a guy, probably in his late 40s or something like that, uh, sitting on a bench, uh, wearing a diaper, not because he's just has some sort of a, a physical difficulty or something like that. He also had a pacifier in his mouth, right? And so this is a guy who, this is apparently like a, a big part of Japanese culture uh, and so forth. There is a subset of the population that likes to just dress up like a baby and be treated like uh, a baby and so forth. And so uh, how strange and how awkward it was for everybody around him to see that. Well, that's the kind of the imagery that I get from this text. 
If you're trying to live according to the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, then you're missing out on what you've been given in Christ. So you have to interpret the passage within the overarching storyline of Scripture and supremacy of Christ. Where is this passage occurring in redemptive history is the question that you're asking uh, here. And, uh, and so principle 10, remember that you're handling the very word of God. Uh, Daniel Wallace uh, wrote this, as a Protestant, I cherish the New Testament teaching on the priesthood of believers that each Christian has the right to his own interpretation, but also that each Christian has the responsibility to get it right. Each Christian has the right to his own interpretation, but also each Christian has the responsibility to get it right. Uh, There should be uh, some uh, degree of fear and trembling as we approach God's word and uh, and not this sort of lackadaisical uh, approach that, uh, that many might want to take. Isaiah 66 talks about this. This is the one who, to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. There should be this trembling uh, at God's word that occurs. And then lastly, before we get to some exercises that we'll do in groups, uh, principle 11, scripture is sufficiently clear to be interpreted uh, correctly. Right? Scripture is sufficiently clear to be interpreted uh, correctly. I will oftentimes interact with somebody who says, we just can't know that, right? And there are things that we can't know. Deuteronomy 29, uh, 29, the things that are revealed belong to the sons of men uh, and so forth, but there are certain things that the Lord has hidden that he's not uncovered. But by and large, what we're doing in reading the Scripture and interpreting the Scripture is saying God has desired for us to interpret this. He's desired for us to know this. Right? When Jesus speaks the parables, who does he give the meaning to? The disciples, right? And if we are disciples, if we are, uh, if we are friends, if we are the elect, then God wants these things to be made known uh, to us. And so we shouldn't uh, approach it as if he has intentionally hidden these things from us. So imagine, if you will, there's a, there's a crime scene and you're a detective or whatever it might be at this crime scene and you're thinking through uh, who did it, you know, who did this particular crime. And, uh, and so you have photos, uh, you have videos, you have testimony, you have all these kinds of things. Is it possible that you're missing something? Is it possible that there is a piece of evidence that you just don't have access to whatsoever? Absolutely. It's absolutely possible uh, for that. But that's not what happens in reading God's Word. There's nothing that's missing from us. It's just a matter of taking the time and the effort and by God's grace discovering everything. It's almost like if you imagine we have access to a video feed for the past six months in that very room from every single angle possible and we have every single fingerprint, we have every single uh, witness testimony and everything else that we could possibly need. It's just a matter of kind of culling through it. It's a matter of kind of wrestling through all of this sort of thing. It's going to take diligence uh, on our uh, part. And so uh, what, I, what I think oftentimes when I uh, engage with someone who says, we can't know that, I don't think you're actually being humble. You're actually being proud because you're saying, what you're saying is not so much, I can't arrive at this interpretation, but you're saying, God can't help me to arrive at this interpretation. God can't reveal what he wants to reveal uh, to me. Or you're saying, 
uh, if you're not proud, you're too lazy. You're too lazy to actually engage in the work, the hard work, the laborious task of, of working through all of these uh, different things that God has embedded into his text. So with those principles in mind, I want to give you uh, a couple of exercises. So again, if you'll get in a group of two to four people, and, uh, and then uh, there are three exercises that I want you to walk through, and we'll spend uh, the next 15 minutes or so uh, doing that, and then we'll do a little bit of Q&A. And so exercise one, I want you to look at uh, the example of Paul in the book of Acts. Uh, and let me give you this as a dis- disclaimer. If you have already like studied any of these in depth, uh, don't use this as an opportunity just to rob the rest of your group from the, op- the opportunity for them to wrestle through it together. So you can lead them accordingly, but if you already know the answer because you've studied this or you read an article on it or whatever it might be, uh, then uh, don't just speak up and, and uh, move on to the next question. So the first one, why is Saul referred to Saul, referred to as Saul, in the first half of Acts, and in the second half of Acts, he's called Paul, right? Why is Saul called Saul in the first half of Acts, and in the second half of Acts, Paul, right? What I did is I gave you every single passage uh, that has him referred to as Saul, uh, and uh, then the first mention of where he's called Paul, I stopped giving those references. I think there is enough information on your sheet that you should be able to come to this conclusion, but feel free, open your Bible, look at other places, whatever it might be. Uh, there are a number of other references throughout the book of Acts to Paul, um, but uh, the only other places in Acts where it calls him Saul are later on where it's recounting his Damascus Road experience. So you have every use of Saul at the beginning of the book all the way until it begins to call him Paul, and then after that, every other use is to Paul. So, all right? So that's the first question. Second question. First Samuel 15, 10 through 11 says this, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. I want to begin to just kind of look at the idea of God having regret. By the way, sorry that your form has been redacted uh, immediately after that. I put a verse, if you could actually read it, some of you might be able to read it. If you could read that verse, it's kind of an interpretive key for understanding the answer to the question I'm about to ask, uh, which is, uh, what does it mean here? What does it mean for God to have regret? In particular, does this mean that God does not know that Saul, uh, talking about a different Saul, obviously King Saul, was going to act as he did? Does this mean that God was surprised by Saul? Is that what it means when it says that I have regretted that I've made Saul king. I regret that I've made Saul king. You don't have to know what exactly it does mean. I just want you to answer the question, does it mean that God was surprised? And how might you know whether that is what it means or not? Those are the two questions I just want you to ask and answer. And then lastly, uh, Acts 2, 37 through 41, I want you to, to talk about what's the promise here. He talks about a promise, the promises to you, and to your children, to all who are far off. What's the promise that it refers to? 
And then what does this have to mean? Uh, what does this mean in regards to infant baptism? Is this a, uh, a promise that we should apply uh, and uh, in particular by baptizing our infants? Uh, does this mean that all of our children will love and trust Jesus? Is that what Paul is saying there? So I just want you to begin to look at that. I, I put some supplementary text that I think will help you uh, to wrestle through that. Um, but uh, maybe 15 uh, minutes or so, uh, see what you can work through, and then we'll take a couple of minutes together. All right. Let's take a second and walk through some of these uh, together. Exercise number one, Saul to Paul. Raise your hand if walking in here this morning, you assumed that the reason that his name is Paul in the latter half of Acts is because God changed his name, right? That was mine up until a few months ago or something like that, right? Now, why do we think that? What are some other examples of God changing someone's name in the Scripture? Abraham, right? What was his name first? Abram, and then it becomes Abraham. What else? Sarah, yeah. Sarai and Sarah. Anything else? Any others? Jacob, Israel, yeah, absolutely. You might also say uh, Simon to Peter or something like that, all right? So there's a lot of examples of that. So is that a true statement? God changes certain people's names at certain times in redemptive history. Yes. Now, after looking at all these, who thinks that is the actual reason for this particular difference in the use of the name in the book of Acts? No, that's probably not it, right? How would we know that? How would we know that? Yeah, he calls him Saul after he's been saved. He calls him Saul after he's already been appointed to ministry, after he's been baptized, all of these sorts of things. When, does it, when is the transition? When does he start calling him Paul? What's happening there? Yes. Yeah, yeah, he's being sent out on missionary journeys. And those missionary journeys are going to uh, involve him interacting among the Gentiles, right? So, uh, what you could conclude is the reason that he's uh, called by a different name is not because God has changed his name, but probably what's going on here is that he was probably, like a lot of people born in that particular time, they had an Aramaic or a Jewish name, and then they had a Greek name or a Roman name. Remember, Paul is a Jew, but he's also, what, a Roman citizen, right? So he would have a Roman name, Paul, Paulos, as well as an Aramaic or whatever name. And so whenever he's in Jewish context, how's he going to have people refer to him? Saul, a Jewish name. Whenever he is in Greek context, how is he going to be referred to? As Paul, right? So that's probably what's going on there. You can kind of wrestle with whether that's actually what's going on. Uh, or not, uh, but at the very least, you could probably see the traditional sort of way, the uh, presumption uh, that a lot of us had walking into the room today is not correct. It's probably not because God changes his name when Paul is uh, first confronted by Jesus because immediately after that, he continues to call him Saul. It's not whenever he is baptized because 
he's called Saul. It's not whenever he first does ministry because he's still called Saul. The reason, the, the particular reference here where that shifts is when he begins to go out uh, on his missionary endeavors among the Greeks and so forth. Let's look at uh, let, number two. All right, so again, we're not gonna work through the intricacies, the theology of God having regret, but hopefully what I wanted you to see in particular was one passage um, and, uh, and so, uh, what passage in the context of 1 Samuel 15 might help us with our understanding of whether or not God was surprised? Do you see something else in that passage? 1529, will someone read that? Yeah, the glory of Israel, God, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So at the very least, we can say, whatever it means for God to have regret is not similar to the way that you and I have regret, right? It's not surprise. We know that on the basis of God has already prophesied and said, who is going to be the chosen line of Israel? The king's going to come from which tribe? Judah, right? Is Saul from the line of Judah? What is he? He's Benjamin, right? So you can't say that God's just surprised. God's already prophesied and said the king is going to come from the line of Judah, and yet Saul is from the line of Benjamin. You have uh, the, the passage in uh, verse 29 that explicitly says that God does not have regret the way that a man has uh, regret. You have other passages, similar sort of passages, Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? You have another, a number of other passages that talk about God knowing the future and, uh, and, and orchestrating the future and so forth. Isaiah 41, 42, and 45, and 46, and so forth. And so uh, what we would come to a conclusion, if we're just looking at all of these things together, we could say, at the very least, God is not surprised by what Saul has done. It has not taken him by surprise as if God doesn't know the future, which is a particular heresy uh, in the modern church today called open theism, as if God just kind of doesn't know what's going to happen. He's a really good predictor he knows all the various options that could happen, but doesn't know actually what's going to happen. And so what we would see is, in some sense, God experiences divine displeasure. He experiences some sense of disappointment, but not surprise or regret in the sense of, I wish I would have done something uh, differently. So that's that. Uh, for more on that, if you want to know what it actually means, just ask Zach. He will fill you in. The third one, promises and pedo baptism this is a big one for, uh, for uh, the Pado-Baptist uh, tradition. They go to this passage and they say, see, it says right there that the promise is for you and for your children. All right, what's the promise that Luke's talking about? Somebody said it. The Holy Spirit, right? You see that? I gave you the, all those supplementary texts. Acts chapter 1 uh, talks about the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.33, being therefore exalted the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Luke uh, 24.49 says the same thing about the promise of the Father, and it talks about being clothed with power 
from on high. The immediate context there, Acts 2.38, uh, that, uh, so the immediately preceding verse talks about you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit uh, before that. And so uh, in the context, what he's saying is the promise is for you, not the promise that I will save your children. The promise is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is for you and for your children and all who are far off. Does that mean that everyone who is far off and every one of our children will receive the Holy Spirit? What's the next line? What's the next clause or, or something condition there? Everyone whom the Lord calls to himself, all right? And uh, so, again, just looking at the context here, we've seen that the promise is the Spirit, and therefore, uh, unless you're saying that God promises the Spirit to all of our children, then we already see a problem with applying this in the Old Testament sort of context of the way that you applied circumcision, you needed to apply uh, baptism. Uh, the phrase, all who are far off, uh, doesn't mean, uh, it helps us to see that we don't baptize our infants any more than we would just baptize everyone who is far off, right? Where it says, the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off. Whatever you do with children, you have to do with everyone who's far off, Right? And is anybody out there arguing that anyone you meet, you should instantly baptize? Whether they want to or not, doesn't matter. Push them into a pool. They get out. Tricked you, but now you're saved. So you're going to be love me. Right? No, absolutely not. Whatever you do with the children, though, is what you have to do with everyone who's far off. So what do you do with that? You put those together, and you see there's that next qualifier. Everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. All right? Whether they're your children or far off or whatever uh, it might be. So you see... Putting all of this together, the passage really has nothing to do with infant baptism. It's simply saying that all who repent and are, baptism, and, and are baptized uh, will receive the Spirit, and this will happen to all whom the Lord calls to uh, himself. So, that is the three exercises. My hope in that is just to see the importance of context and to see if you really take the time and you have the clues and so forth. Hopefully you looked at the supplementary text and so forth. If you have the time and energy and effort to walk through all these things, by and large, you might not arrive at a full-fledged understanding of why the name changed, but you at least can rule out that idea that it changed because Paul was saved. You might not have all of the answers as to what it means for God to have regret, but at least you know it doesn't mean that he's surprised or whatever it might be. You might not have all the answers to be able to dispute uh, pedo baptism, but you have at least enough there to notice the promise is not that God will save your children or whatever it might be. And so the, the point there is just if you have enough time and energy and effort, if you're working in the context of community, you should be able to answer a lot of these interpretive sort of questions and decisions uh, and so forth. And so, with that in mind, for the sake of time, we need to go. So, Wade, do you mind praying for us?